0: Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. Listen to this Health Views episode to learn about Kaiser Permanente's Thriving Schools Initiative, which aims to support schools and districts across the country to ensure that teachers, staff, and students have the support they need to thrive in learning and in health. Annie Reed, Executive Director of Thriving Schools and Communities at Kaiser Permanente, is an expert in thinking about the policy, systems, and environmental changes that help ensure kids, teachers, and school staff can be at their best. Additionally, she works with schools to strive for better outcomes and identify solutions to increase resilience. So one of the things as I was kind of looking up Annie Reed and trying to learn about you and who you are was looking at your education. And every step brought you further to the West Coast. And I am very curious as to why that is.
1: Well, that's so funny. I'd never thought about that. Well, it actually started in the middle. I grew up in Chicago. Okay. And I went to undergrad, you know, on the East Coast and really thought that I was going to be an urban cowgirl or a cowgirl transplant to live from a suburban slash urban, you know, upbringing and then move to a a pretty rural uh, small town for for my college experience. And it turns out I do not thrive in those settings. (laughs) It was beautiful and amazing. And I had an incredible academic experience, but it was not. it, It was pretty isolated. I struggled with that. So I appreciate it now. But I think at the time it was it was hard. And then I went back to Chicago. Met my husband, worked for the Chicago public schools and for a variety of nonprofits working on school based health initiatives. So did actually two stints at Chicago Public Schools for which I was often kind of cajoled as like a a martyr for punishment (laughs) because it is public service is hard and working for school districts is really hard. And so loved I mean, loved every minute, honestly. And then got my master's degree at University of Chicago. And then after the twenty 14, I think, uh, Chicago's teachers' union strike. I think I'm getting that year right. My husband and I, my husband, who is an educator by training, became an administrator. We both realized we were interested in a change, so we moved to Southern California. Had our oldest son moved to Northern California 368 days later, and I started my doctorate at Berkeley. Oh my God!
0: (laughs) And your your master's is in public policy, your doctorate in public health. How do those two things go together for you?
1: Oh, it's a great question. I think I am so, I think it's all about systems change in my mind. It's about how to support better outcomes for for individual people, for communities, and, and at, at the more social level. So I think I'm really interested in what levers we can pull that have the biggest impact across society. And, and often, of course, those have unintended consequences, but but really thinking about, you know, I always knew my work was always focused on, on public health. I had a, a series of experiences in high school and college working on public health initiatives, primarily in Latin America, that really informed sort of my interest and love for for healthcare. And, and I always thought I was going to be a physician. But then as soon as I understood how a lot of the outcomes I was seeing at the individual level in Latin America were associated with some the issues there, but frankly, also it's issues in the U.S. that were Underlying a lot of the the public health challenges and socioeconomic challenges and economic challenges, and sort of all you know that people you know tens of thousands of miles away were experiencing, I realized that I really wanted to think about how to look more systematically at, at, at how we approach care for each other.
0: I love that, and it's so interesting. I think how the paradigm has shifted so much. You know, you mentioned medicine. I mean I even in my years there it's gone from the patient to the panel to the population and now it's community and it's all those things which really I think overlaps with what we understand about schools and healthy kids and healthy environments for them. So now you are actually at Kaiser Permanente and you are the National Director for Thriving Schools. I probably got your title just a little bit wrong. But tell me about what that means to be a national director for thriving schools. Why is a health insurance company, a healthcare delivery company, even doing this kind of work? What's important about it and how does it actually tie into health?
1: Great question. I think, first of all, I just want to say I feel so lucky to get to do my job every day because it combines my love for systems change uh, uh, with a topic that I feel is so important. And really, I think schools are where if we think about how really to ensure that, that we are addressing equity and health equity, then what better place to start than in schools where really we can do our best, not not always, but we can do our best to address some of the health that are inherent, uh, you know, because of racism and, and other sort of systems and um, failures, frankly, that, that we can we can try to intervene early by ensuring that every child has access to a school where health is a priority and, and that, that those issues that, that are, you know, so interrelated with academic success can be addressed so that kids really can, you know, fulfill, and, and, and staff and teachers also can fulfill sort of their highest calling when it comes to and I think, you know, for Kaiser Permanente, we help, I think only 4% of health outcomes actually are dependent on what happens in a medical office setting. And so, so much of what we experience for, you know, people's health outcomes is dependent on on the communities where they live, the schools that they attend, the opportunities that they have, of course, you know, all of these social drivers of health. And so education really is, I think there's a, a codependency uh, with, with health and that we're all aiming toward the same thing, right? better outcomes for our, our members, our students, uh, our patients, and that when they're healthy, they learn better. And when they learn better, they're healthier. And so it's just sort of a reinforcing opportunity to, it's a natural setting to to address health and to ensure that the, the schools uh, where, you know, a fifth of our members spend most of their time are places that Embrace health as a necessary input and an outcome of education.
0: Yeah, you mentioned all of those people who are invested in kids. The other one that comes to mind is these are also the workforce of our future. And so having them be healthy in body and mind, having them be intellectually stimulated, challenged, and wanting to aspire to different things, and giving them that broad base with which to jump off into adulthood. The other thing that I found really interesting about the work that you do is that. When I think of thriving schools, I think of the kids in them. And yet there's a lot of emphasis on the teachers and staff. Don't they maybe just get enough outside of school? Why do we need to worry about the adults and the staff when really it's the kids who maybe need more of an advocacy from the work that you're doing? So tell me about that emphasis.
1: You know, I will say I had the same question <laughs> early on, because when I worked for school districts, which I, I worked for districts in Chicago and then in Southern California, the work that we were doing was really squarely focused on students. And really, I would say teachers and staff were the conduit for reaching students. Mm-hmm. We weren't focused on how to support really robustly the health outcome, mental, physical, social of the adults in the building. But I think that we are on to something here. And actually, not just because it's unique, there hasn't traditionally been a lot of focus on that. And I think Kaiser, in a lot of ways, has been at, at the lead that discussion. But nothing has, I think, laid bare the essential role the adults in the building play in terms of delivering the structure, the systems, the care, the love, and the education, obviously, to our students as COVID-19, which has obviously, in, in a lot of places across the country, shut our schools down for in-person instruction. I want to recognize the incredible work of teachers and staff who have persisted in the dream challenges of virtual delivery when that's been necessitated and also in-person or even hybrid. So not to say that schools have been closed, but where doors have been physically shut, I think it has really given us a new insight into how important it is to attend to the health of the teachers and staff, really to make sure that they feel cared for in their jobs, that they feel safe with their jobs, that they are working in places that prioritize them and their health and their needs. Yes, because they, of course, are, are better equipped to support their students when they are themselves healthy, just as it is true for those of us who are parents, right, that we have to care for ourselves to be able to show up for our kids, but also because we care about their health as individuals. So I think we have been really, lucky is not the right word. We, we've been focused on, on the right audience, able to really respond to the recognition of address the health of teachers and staff.
0: Yeah, and I think it's been a learning for the entire community. And it is the entire ecosystem that really contributes to that sense of health for everybody. And you can see that changing as well. It used to be this was just a place you went to learn. For a lot of kids, it's where they get their meals. Some of them, you know, the the biggest meals of the day, even during COVID or even during school vacations, we would get announcements, you know what, please still come by, you know, these are going to be lunches available for people to pick up. And just realizing what a resource and almost what a safety net the schools have been and continue to be, and I think even are filling a bigger role than ever, as you mentioned, during COVID-19. I've got challenges myself with kids in school, but they're older and I cannot imagine what it's been like for working parents for people trying to help with the virtual care at home, homeschooling, all of those things together. And then you look at the burnout that people are having through all of this. And I know that we're doing work around resilience for both teachers, staff, both for all and students as well. What does that look like when you're trying to actually help people learn and then extend tools for resilience in the schools? One of the things that I know that you've been involved in is really resilience in school environments. And resilience can cover a whole bunch of things, and it can mean a lot of different things to people, especially as it kind of drills down. But at the same time, I think that there are probably systems issues or policy issues that help to contribute to a resilient school district or classroom or school. So so can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely.
1: So You know, I think trauma has become a much more sort of household term that that a lot of us are aware of. And it's no surprise that across, you know, socioeconomic status, across race, across, you know, geography, trauma happens at, you know, really, I think, an alarming rate. For people across the country, including children, and that's typically called the ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And then it, but it happens across the life course and people bring that to school, people bring those experiences to school. And and in, in a, a lot of ways, and I'm, I, we can think of many examples, you know, school discipline, for example, which is uh, disproportionately punitive for children of color, particularly black children, boys and girls. And that can tend to re-traumatize people. So schools can be both a place where trauma occurs and they can be a place where, where trauma is fortunately exacerbated. And, and that impedes learning for children, and it certainly impedes uh, adults' ability to uh, perform their jobs at, at their fullest potential. And so resilience in schools is really about, and, and, and that's sort of, a, you know, I would say the extreme, but but unfortunately very common sort of level. But but then there are, you know, everything sort of un, uh, underneath that where schools have, have traditionally and understandably been so focused on academic outcomes. The sort of the the systems that wrap around the teachers and staff and students that that help identify both at the sort of uh, at at the systems level, but also at the at the individual level, when trauma is happening, how it is being experienced, and then addressing it in a way that is you know tender and healing has I think been a gap in in our approach in, in schools, and so the work that we're doing. Well, I was just going to
0: comment is that um, even these childhood traumas or these cumulative traumas affect an individual's risk for health outcomes later in life. And so I think we're learning those kinds of things where, again, it's so much on the individual that you know, eat better and exercise more, but, you know, make sure you get your sleep. And yet there's some things that are just so huge and pervasive, and we don't even know how to help people heal a lot of times, but they then have obesity, they have diabetes, depression, heart disease, all of these things that that start manifesting after years and sometimes decades that add up to other things that we see in community and social life. So just piling on to i think the effect and the cumulative effect of those traumas through life
1: absolutely and that's that's just the the effect on health right then we think about what's the effect on academic outcomes and, and which of course then leads to health outcomes uh, what's the uh, effect on on job retention which is both and and very challenging for schools and districts as they try to fill vacant positions with a a workforce that is, you know, uh, in a lot of places uh, declining. So yeah, there are just multiple manifestations of of how this really impacts, you know, health and wellness at sort of a global, you know, um, systems level. So our work is really to get in there and support schools, both, both sort of the Identify what are the systems issues that are happening. Do they have, for example, a staff break room where you know if if somebody, a, a teacher or a staff member, feels dysregulated. I, I know that feeling well. Having two little kids, that it, it's just amazing sometimes how even as a, an adult I get so dysregulated with children, and that you can take a break, you can step away and get yourself together, and then come back and, and take a, a more uh, trauma informed approach with the child or the children. So so you know that's that's one example. And also for people with more acute issues, uh, you know, to really identify what are sort of the indicators of trauma, how can we ensure that, that children or adults are getting the right services to support them and, and their their mental health or, or needs in particular, so.
0: There's a phrase I've heard, trauma-informed. What does that mean? That is such a good question, Deb. <laughs> I think there is, uh, uh, people throw it around, and as I you ask the
1: question, I'm thinking to myself, how would I define that? <laughs> I think, I think there is probably a textbook definition that I can look up and give you, but I, I, offhand, I would say that trauma-informed really is, and it happens in education settings, it happens in healthcare settings, but it, it's really this mindset almost of coming to questions or to people and instead of saying, what's wrong with you, asking what happened to you mm. and recognizing the impact of trauma on how people interact with the world, how people experience Experience the world and what that means for their behavior their health outcome and and the choices that they make so It sounds a lot like empathy. Like
0: what? I said it sounds a lot like empathy. I agree. Yeah. So teachers, they go to four years of college. Really? Is this all in the curriculum? I cannot imagine what they are dealing with every day. What they they're trying to get across subject matter of, of whatever they're teaching. They're trying to identify socioeconomic needs food insecurity, housing insecurity, sometimes diagnosable conditions in kids where it's difficult for them to learn from a a biological standpoint. Sometimes it's just developmental, all of these things. And then taking place in the midst of all of this social unrest, upheaval, kind of just, uh, it blows my mind to think of what they are dealing with minute to minute, hour by hour, day to day in their classrooms. How do we help them to be resilient?
1: Well, if I could just start by answering sort of with a little bit of a history lesson here, because really teachers weren't expected to have the role of being sort of, you know, the, the go-to resource for all of these things that extended beyond, sort of, you know, pure educational instruction. And, and there are reasons for that, right? We used to have a system that had just uh, more of an emphasis on health, that was, you know, through a better ratio of nurses to students, in schools, or more counselors and advisors, and psychologists and social workers, and of course, it's never it's never been equal or equitable everywhere because the way that our school districts and our school systems are funded allows for just really, I would say, without sounding judgy, <laughs> I think of the right word, but it, it just it allows for incredible levels of autonomy and decision making at the local level. It's it's you know we are a local control mm-hmm. education system, and so I don't want to give the impression that every school district or every school had a school nurse or that it was, you know, but, but there were, there were more systems in play to help support that. And with the, you know, narrowing of, of sort of the, the focus and emphasis of education on these metrics. And I think that really started with No Child Left Behind, where we were, you know, just tunnel vision focused on academic performance. Resources got diverted from a, a lot of those sort of what were considered ancillary support to being directed to academic outcomes and i think in that we lost this important conceptualization of the fact that kids are are entire people they are mm-hmm. humans they are they are um, multidimensional with you know many needs and desires and talents and skills and opportunities and that all of those things are interrelated and that we can't disaggregate a child's mental or physical well-being from from their experience in a school setting. And so I think this is we're on this incredible opportunity both to your point to integrate this idea of sort of health and well-being into you know the teacher training into administrator training programs and I think that's happening sort of slower than I would like it for sure but but, but it's happening more. But I think we also sort of have this like social society level awakening of COVID to say like, are we doing this right? You know, is this, is, how did we end up here that, that we have shut down the system that serves our, you know, entire, you know, the vast majority of children in our country and that keeps our economy tugging. And, and so I think this is, we're in a moment where we have a moment to, to step back and, and really revisit how we prioritize health and
0: the other thing that I've just witnessed through my own kids going through this school system is such a different conversation around mental health. You know, it was, of course, you you had to have your vaccinations and you got an eye screening test and you got a hearing test, right? So there was some physical components to the whole school experience when I was growing up and even for them. And now there's so many more conversations and openness about mental health, you know, safe to tell being able to have anonymous resources where you can either call yourself or call about someone that you're concerned about, decreasing the stigma of talking about mental health. And I think this whole generation also just, they... They're very open in a very different way.
1: I, I, it's great to hear you have that sort of firsthand experience, and certainly, I, I think that is reflective of the trends that we're seeing nationally and sort of just in the vernacular, right? And I, you know, Deb, that schools are the number one pediatric mental health provider, and which is fantastic and frankly scary because they are under resourced to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I could talk for days about all the things that are happening and the innovations and you know, this is, this is not for lack of desire. I think schools completely recognize the incredible importance of mental health as sort of a, a, a you know, a school level strategy, a classroom level strategy, and, and also at the individual level, or I shouldn't say strategy, but sort of the impacts, right, mm-hmm. that, that are so huge. And thinking about, just, there's so much incredible work going on to address those impacts and to expand services for children and through school-based care and through partners. And it's not enough because the needs, to your point, they're just, and they're growing precipitously. So yeah, it, it's an interesting time.
0: One of the things that we're seeing in social media is kids with their phones taking videos. School isn't always a safe place, not always safe from each other. Sometimes there's violence that occurs there, there's bullying, and it affects not just the people and the perpetrator, but the witnesses, right? We know that there's kind of this secondary effect of those kinds of environments. How is it that we... And intervene in places that we can't even get into. Parents can't just walk in and observe a classroom. So how is it that parents actually talk to their children and understand what their experience is in school? How is it that the teachers talk to each other about that and make it a very safe space for kids?
1: I think there are, it's such a good question. And, you know, I think that there are, this is sort of at the intersection of a lot of different issues. Yes. You know, like what the school's responsibility. Sort of what do they have, what can they penalize students or discipline students for? What are parent relationships with schools? And I think what's been so interesting about this year is that whether we like it or not, a lot of families have had much more line of sight into their children's academic experience because it's been from the, I don't know, discomfort of their own homes. Right, right. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of interesting conversation happening right now about how do we keep parents engaged? How do we keep that sort of level of interaction and collaboration between, and and it's not just parents, it's caretakers, of course, as as well. And and sometimes it's older siblings who are helping to support their younger siblings. So it's certainly sort of a a diverse cadre of of folks who have been more engaged in sort of the learning experience over the course of the last year and a half. But how do we sustain that? How do we ensure, you know, in some cases that, that those children, for example, who have experienced bullying in person and prefer to continue with learning have that option? And I think these are a lot of questions that are unanswered, but that certainly have repercussions for both the the individual health of students, the mental health of students and staff, but also of sort of the key relationship between parents and caretakers and the school itself. So I think it's something that we're keeping our eye on.
0: Well, and I think you referenced it as well. The other issue that comes up for me, of course, is the literal physical health of everybody that's in the school building. There are vulnerable children, there are vulnerable adults, and I think that this is just again another conversation about what does this mean to be able to participate in this whole learning environment as staff, teachers, Students, What is it that we owe to each other to make it the best environment that we can? And I think we're really at the beginning of having those conversations again, because apparently we don't have agreement about what that means. Another thing that I know that you've been leading or involved in is the National School Health Collaborative which is partnering, I believe, with institutions, people outside of KP and trying to find those guidelines, those recommendations. What does that work about? And what are you most excited about when you think about some future future things that are going to be happening?
1: So when the Pandemic first was in March of 2020 when when it was first you know announced that school buildings across the country were being shuttered temporarily. You know at the time we thought it was two or three weeks felt totally manageable. We brought together a group of some of our most esteemed national partners that support healthy schools and we started just to put our heads together to ask ourselves what is happening, what are we hearing from schools, what do they need, what are the questions that they have and how can we support them collectively and sort of, you know, amplify the importance of health at this incredibly unprecedented time. And so we started to really just have conversations at a regular cadence and we started to do things. We started a webinar series, which, you know, at the time we thought was totally innovative and, you know, (laughs) everybody had that brilliant idea. We also did a playbook for healthy schools and also, you know, a lot of people did that too. So that was, but, but it was, what was so exciting about our Playbook for Healthy Schools is that we lifted up some really sort of low-hanging fruit strategies that schools and districts across the country could engage in to ensure that they were, whether they were virtual or hybrid or in-person, that they were thinking about the different dimensions of health that were exacerbated by COVID. And we were all sort of using the same voice. Send that message. And we had over 30 organizations across the country who endorsed and disseminated this playbook. And so it really sort of gave us some momentum around this notion that we are stronger together. And that we have, I think, have a little bit of like uh, an underdog experience of always, you know, kind of trying to knock on the doors of schools and saying like, you know, don't forget about us. You know, health matters. We can't forget that it- Academic outcomes, and and again, I, I you know would never say that schools didn't get it. Schools get it, but there's so much on their plate that it oftentimes felt like health was an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Because you know necessarily that's just not what they were being being held accountable for, and where the money comes from, or funded to do, or coordinated. So we started to say, okay, you know. Where is this heading? Where can we go together, and how can we continue to leverage our voice to draw attention to this incredible salient moment around the importance of health for schools and as schools, as a as as public health, you know, if if our schools are not open because of a public health crisis, then we are we're doing something wrong, and we can do better than that by our kids, by our uh, by our society, by our economy, all of that. And so we decided that we would move from the transactional work, which I think was. You know, we believe it and believe it was impactful, but really think about how do we pivot to the transformational idea that we are all aiming towards the same horizon, whether we're in education, whether we're in healthcare, whether we're at the intersection of the two, and how do we lock arms and um, both. Articulate a vision of where we're heading together, and then how to get there, so that healthy schools are the the given, not the exception. And so I think what we're what we're really looking at is how can we ensure that from the federal, state, and local level there are coordinated strategies, funding mechanisms, guidance, accountability measures, education and training for our teachers and staff, as we were talking about earlier, so that like all the pieces of the puzzle can come together, and that people at the individual district or school, or even at the state level, don't have to fit them together themselves. We can use health as sort of an educational equity tool in our tool belt to improve academic outcomes.
0: Annie, I can just hear the passion in your voice, and it brings together all the things that you've talked about. The systems thinking, change management. It brings in your public policy history, your, your public health history, all of those things together to actually change an experience of health for American children. What an exciting thing to be part of. I'm totally excited as well. So I'm with you on that one. One thing that I'd like to talk just a little bit more about is equity. And what does that mean in a school setting? Can you actually just define it for us right now? Is it equality? What does it mean? to have equity in schools? What does it mean to you? What does it mean for health and education? So
1: I think there, the equity, I don't think, means the same thing to everybody. And certainly, I think there, there are, we could talk about, you know, technology and broadband access and what that means for, you know, especially these days in the era of, of distance learning, how that influences academic outcomes. You can talk about the resources and the funding that schools have and how because of local control, it is wildly different across states and even between and some places between schools and districts, depending on sort of the, the local tax base. So there are lots of different manifestations of equity in school settings, and many of them are problematic, <laughs> if not all. But I will certainly be- to health equity. And I think, you know, certainly there is a question around delivering health services in schools and sort of what that looks like and whether it's, it's equitable. I will just say in short order, it is not. We do not have enough services, especially for our most vulnerable population in school. And and frankly, those are typically the populations that also don't have great access to care outside of school. So, you know, that that's an issue. More broadly, I think, and, and we were sort of touching on this earlier as we were talking about trauma and through the repercussions of trauma is that, and interestingly, this is dovetailing with this conversation about critical race theory, which is a highly politicized and controversial
0: topic. For some people. For some people. Yes.
1: For some people. Yes. Yeah. And sort of this fundamental question about whether in in the United States, our systems are inherently racist and that, that they are a reinforced white dominant culture. And so I would say that we know that racism is a social driver of health. And we also know that Schools are places that have a long history of reinforcing racist policies. Again, I'll give the example of school discipline. There are many others. Um, you know, standardized testing is a good example, sort of more academically. They're, uh, they're tracking students into special education, disproportionately tracking students of color and, again, black children in particular. But but I think, you know, school discipline, I'll, I'll just give because there is a, a, literally direct through line between discipline in schools and the prison. And so, which is called the school to prison pipeline. And so when we think about equity in schools, and, and we think about how racism as a social driver of health impacts people's health, both, you know, literally their physical health outcomes, but also their sense of belonging, mm-hmm. their sense of identity in a school setting and understanding who you are. It, that that happens in you learn who you are you learn through interacting with your peers you learn about yourself through you know interactions with your teachers and how you learn and uh, how you and what you like to eat. Those things happen in school. And those are sort of our first experiences with that sense of identity and belonging. And so really thinking about, again, goes back to this idea of how we support resilience in schools. They're different, but they're so related. How do we make sure that schools are places that both actively resist racism and dismantle policies that perpetuate it, but then also that people, that every person feels connected, feels included uh, and feels like they can bring their authentic selves to the community, just as we want that to be true for ourselves at work. So I would say equity is just a, really an ever-present question, challenge, and obligation for us to, to better address in full settings.
0: Yeah. And I would say one of the things that I learned around that equitable lens was identifying kids who are quote-unquote gifted and talented. And typically it's It's the kids who actually had access to books when they were little. Right. And why did they have access to books? Because a lot of times their parents were socioeconomically more advantaged and able to buy those or get them to the library or had time to read to them. And so there's there's a lot that seems to be inherent in who people are and how they get identified, even as little children which really has nothing to do but its its home circumstances. And I'm even thinking about the relief that's been given to a lot of families and how that's changed the whole conversation around resilience. I've seen a lot of folks talk about, you know, I didn't really need to learn how to cope with my stress, I needed to know how to pay the rent. And so I think that that's probably true for a lot of these kids as well that are struggling. This is this is not an individual failing or a lack of a skill as much as it is actually a way of living for them that is stressful due to financial stresses, transportation stresses, jobs, safety in their home, etc. So it is such a big conversation to be having and I'm excited that you're working with all of these different inputs into what that needs to be because it's it's certainly going to take that whole village to, to raise these kids and to make a difference in the next decade as well. I've learned a lot from you. This has been a really interesting and stimulating conversation. Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked about that I haven't.
1: You know, maybe one thing I could comment on, I I don't know, is I'm just thinking about sort of how our definition of health in schools has been so narrow, right? Mm -hmm. And and that, you know, I think oftentimes when people hear school health or healthy schools, they think about health education, or they think about a school nurse, or they think about a school-based health center, and those things are all critically important. And as we think about how health is and really just how multidimensional it is really is that I think this is the moment to reframe how we, how we define mm-hmm. healthy schools. It's not about doing one thing, you know, enough checking, minutes checking or those boxes about, meals. yes, uh-huh. right. It, it's about really, uh, uh, you know, because whether we like it or not schools are responsible for the health outcomes of kids. It's, it's just the way it works. They're not funded well enough to do it. They're not trained well enough to do it. They're not staffed well enough to do it, and I think we're in a moment where we, again, we, we can be asking ourselves like, why not? And what would it take to get there? Because you know, this is this is the time to really recognize the the, and I think we do, we do. I, you know, I don't. I think I'm I'm just have the the, the opportunity to sort of have my pulpit here. <laughs> but I think there is this widespread recognition that, that helps manifest in all these different ways in, in individuals in communities and society, and certainly schools are no exception to that, and that if we're going to do right by our kids, if we're going to do it right by our teachers and staff, we got to put our money where our mouth is and talk about not just like, you know, obesity prevention or mental health or, you know, housing, but all of those things are interconnected, and that it is, it behooves all of us in the short and the long term to really address those comprehensive needs and figure out how to make sure that schools aren't just bearing the burden of doing that themselves. But that they have the partners, the resources, the training to make that vision a reality. And it's gonna take all of us to do that. So I would just say I call that action for you know your listeners is to spread the word, proselytize about the importance of schools for, for health. And you know, talk, if you're a parent, talk to your principal, talk to your teachers, understand, you know, there's all this federal money that schools have received around COVID. But it's not just for COVID mitigation or prevention, which of course is you know paramount at, at, at this moment. But also, you know, thinking about how can we increase mental health providers in schools? How can we take a more strategic and comprehensive approach to, to health? And we have a lot of answers to that on our Kaiser Permanente <laughs> website. But well, I was driving schools. I should say more specifically. But but you know, and and if certainly if you have a philanthropic arm at your organization, like Think About Schools, as a place that that needs this kind of and not just in the short term, but really in perpetuity. And, you know, whether it's partnership, uh, you know, sort of in kind and lending expertise and resources, or it's literally, you know, financial support to schools. I, this is our, our I, I'm a child of the 80s, so I will quote the Goonies because, you know, it's amazing and
0: just say, this is our moment.
1: <laughs> this is our moment. It really is. And, and we can do better and it's going to take us all.
0: Thank you so much. I, I love your passion. I love your call to action. We're kind of in that awareness stage where I think we haven't been before. To your point, now that we have maybe some resources that we didn't have differently, we have the ability to change the capacity for doing these things. And then it's it's all about action and what is it that we're actually going to do in this space. So... I, I love it. Thank you so much. I really
1: appreciate the opportunity. This has been a great conversation, and I, I can't tell you how much. I've, I believe this is foundational to achieving sort of social equity <laughs> and, and better outcomes for, for us all. So I think this is one of the ways that we can care for each other in this really challenging time. Awesome. I
0: Thanks agree with us. you completely. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.